Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. L-A-S-I-K. LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And listener Robert Casey pinged me on Twitter with a request that I do an episode about touchscreens and styluses, or styli. Now, my original co-host, Chris Paulette and I covered this topic on an ancient episode of Tech Stuff that published all the way back on October 19th, 2009. Holy cow, 10 years ago. But I think it's past time to revisit this topic and give it the full modern-day tech stuff treatment. Now, there are a few interesting things about touchscreens in general that I'd like to get out of the way. One is that it's pretty ubiquitous today. It's, it's, it's a user interface that you find everywhere for everything from mobile or mobile devices to lots of different laptop and desktop displays. Now, granted, I've never owned a laptop or desktop display that had touchscreen technology incorporated in it, largely because I didn't see a lot of use in that based on how I tend to interact with computers. Not to say that there's no use for it, just that the way I use computers, it wouldn't make sense for me. Usually I don't have the display so close that reaching out and touching it would be terribly easy or comfortable. And most of what I use computers for requires lots of typing, which isn't great on most touchscreen implementations. I guess you could pair it with voice recognition and get more use out of it. 
But I am curious if any of you guys use computers with touch displays and what do you use them for? As I'm sure there are plenty of use cases where it is incredibly handy, so to speak. Oh, and there will probably be a lot of unintentional puns in this episode. And maybe a couple of intended ones will be but a touch away, so to speak. Anyway, touchscreens are everywhere, but their history is fairly recent. Another thing I find really interesting about them is that there are a lot of different ways to go about it, and the end result aims to be the same, but there are several approaches to implementing touchscreens, and each implementation has its advantages and disadvantages, so we'll cover those in this episode. And yet one more thing I think is interesting uh, is really just how innovative touchscreen devices have been. If you look back at the science fiction films and TV series from the 1950s and even into the 1960s when touchscreen technology was first being described, you'll rarely see examples of that idea. Touchscreens were such a leap forward that speculative fiction writers weren't really imagining it as a user interface. That's why in series like Star Trek, the original series, you'll see characters interacting with physical dials and knobs and levers that are the controls of a 23rd century spaceship. You know, you look at those controls today and you think, oh, that looks antiquated. Unlike a lot of technologies we've seen over the last several decades, touch screens weren't heavily predicted in fiction. And I think I'll have to do an episode dedicated to tech that writers described years before it became a reality. That's an interesting subject of its own, like the types of technology that science fiction writers predicted before it happened. You know, things like, you know, geosynchronous satellites. But that's for another episode. Okay, so we're ready for our history lesson, which as you longtime listeners know, is sort of a requirement in every text of episode. Before I dive in, I want to give a shout out to Florence Ion's article, From Touch Displays to the Surface, A Brief History of Touchscreen Technology in Ars Technica. It's a fantastic summary of the evolution of the technology. And if you want to learn more about the history of touchscreens, I urge you to seek it out. It was not the only source I used when getting all the history stuff, but it was a, a great resource. Also, I normally break up the history and the description of how technology works into different parts of episodes, typically. But uh, in this case, I think it works better to describe how each version of the technology works as we get to them. And as a peek behind the curtain, I came to that decision after I was about a third of the way done typing out all of my notes. So I actually went back and revised my notes quite a bit and rearranged things because I did not like the way the episode flowed in its original form. So, all that being said, where did the idea for the touchscreen interface come from? Well, before there were touchscreens that could interpret the touch of a, a finger or stylus, there was the light pen. The first light pen was part of a system that IBM designed called Whirlwind, which the company built for NORAD. But the way touchscreens work is different from the way light pens work. With touchscreens, the technology for detecting a point of contact is generally built into or behind or sometimes in front of the screen itself. With a light pen, the detector is actually in the pen side of the interface, not on the screen side. So the screen is inert. It's the pen that's active. Light pens have a photoelectric cell built into them. In other words, a sensor that detects light. And typically, a light pen is tethered to the computer system it's connected to. It's actually physically connected with a cable. 
holding a light pen up to a screen would allow the light pen to register when the monitor's electron beam scanned across that point. Because monitors in those days were based off the old cathode ray tube technology, which uses an electron gun that shoots a beam of electrons in uh, row after row after row. So it goes, it scans across the screen and then down the screen. So it goes uh, one line across, then moves down a line, goes across, moves down a line, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, these electrons then hit against phosphor points on the backside of the screen and it generates light. Now, because the light pens were tethered to the computer system, the computer would pick up precisely where on the screen the light pen was sitting. And it did this by cross-referencing the time of contact with the position of the electron beam at that moment. So the light pen would detect this electron beam, and that message would be sent to the computer. And the computer knew where the electron beam was at that precise instant, and that way it knew where the point of contact was. Now, this is largely an outlier for the touchscreen topic, but it's kind of a predecessor, so I thought I would include it. Now, unlike a lot of other technologies, which tend to get pretty muddy when you start asking questions like, where did this idea come from? We can be reasonably certain that Eric Arthur Johnson, or E.A. Johnson, proposed the first technological solution to creating a touchscreen computer interface. Johnson was an engineer at what was at that point the Royal Radar Establishment, which was a research facility in Malvern, England. And as the name suggests, this facility was chiefly focused on developing new radar technologies. And it was, an op- it was operating as a, a research organization that worked closely with British armed forces. It would later become the Defense Evaluation and Research Agency, after merging with a few other organizations. And later still, it would become part of a defense contractor in England called Kinetic, spelled with a Q. Johnson was working on improving the user interface for air traffic control staff. He wrote an article and it had the title Touch Display, a Novel Input-Output Device for Computers. It was published in the journal Electronics Letters on October uh, in 1965. I said on October, I should say in October 1965 because I don't have the precise date of when in October it came out. But in 1967, he published a follow-up piece titled Touch Displays, a programmed man-machine interface that further developed this concept and fleshed it out. And he was describing what would become the capacitive touchscreen interface. And I also find this interesting because for many years, it seemed the majority of consumer products that had touchscreens used an alternative to the capacitive approach known as resistive touchscreens. And those two technologies make up the majority of the touchscreens we tend to encounter. I'll explain the differences between them when we get to each. But first, before I get into the differences, what are capacitive touchscreens and how do they register touch? Well, they only register a touch if the substance touching the screen can hold an electrical charge. So... Stuff like our skin. Our skin can hold an electrical charge. It's electrically conductive. So if you've ever used a touchscreen while wearing gloves and nothing happened, it's probably because the capacitive touchscreen was not able to detect any sort of electrical connection. The gloves were acting like insulators. They inhibit electrical charge. 
That's why there are companies out there that sell gloves that have conductive wire or conductive pads at the fingertips. And it's also why you can't use something like an inert plastic stylus on a capacitive screen. You can use a a stylus that has a uh, conductive surface at the tip. That would work. But if it's just a plastic stick, for example, it wouldn't activate the screen. But you could use something else like, um, you know, like a hot dog which as I understand it, used to be a thing in South Korea. People would use hot dogs to activate their capacitive touch screens when it was too cold for them to not wear gloves, which tells me you could probably make a killing in Seoul by selling screen cleaners dedicated to eradicating wiener grease from your screens. But how do the capacitive screens actually detect touch? There's a couple of different approaches, but the general idea is to create a surface that holds an electrical charge. And in many implementations, this is done with a grid of very fine conductive wires running in rows and columns on an XY grid, in other words. So like a net. Sensors pick up changes in this electrical charge when they happen. So if an object that conducts electricity makes contact with the screen, so for example, your finger, there's a change in that electrical charge. Technically, the change is a drop in voltage. So by detecting where that change happens along those XY coordinates, a microprocessor can interpret the touch and associate it with whatever command you wanted to execute. So in the example of activating an icon on a screen, the icon represents the execution of a particular app or program. When the microprocessor or touch sensor detects a contact at the location of such an icon, it interprets that touch to mean execute the program associated with the image at these coordinates on the display, and then it will launch the app. A similar thing happens with gesture controls, like swiping or pinching. Engineers and programmers have to build in this capability so that the system can interpret the meaning behind the gestures and thus produce the appropriate result. But the actual detection of a touch all comes down to that change in voltage. Early capacitive screens could really only detect one point of contact. So if you tried touching the screen with more than one finger, typically the screen would only register that first touch. This is because the sensing technology was limited. Early sensors would estimate the point of contact. It wasn't incredibly precise. It was precise enough for general use, but you couldn't really get fine-tuning with it. Later implementations would incorporate better sensors, and eventually you'd find capacitive screens in which each row or column of wires had its own associated sensors, which increased their accuracy, and it opened up the possibility of a capacitive screen with multi-touch capability. Johnson would receive a U.S. patent for his invention in 1969. So, if you'd like an engineer's explanation of the basic technology behind these capacitive touchscreens, you too can search for U.S. patent 3,482,241. The patent includes circuit diagrams and a flowchart that are helpful to understand how it works as well. The capacitive screen was a great innovation, but it saw little adoption over the following few years. An alternative approach would get a bit more traction in the short term. You could say the tech world couldn't resist it. I'll explain more after this break. 
Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... <laughs> Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1970, Dr. George Samuel Hurst invented the first resistive touchscreen. In the late 1940s through the 1950s, he had worked at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, an R&D facility that is funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. Hearst had been working in the field of atomic physics, developing stuff like radiation detectors at nuclear testing sites. In 1966, he accepted a job as professor of physics at the University of Kentucky. While in that role, he continued doing research into atomic physics, but his team was running into some obstacles, particularly in the use of a Van de Graaff accelerator, which is an electrostatic generator that can be used as a particle accelerator. To quote the Minerals, Metals, and Materials Society, 
which has a PDF about these devices, quote, a high potential difference is built up and maintained on a smooth conducting surface by the continuous transfer of positive static charges from a moving belt to the surface. When used as a particle accelerator, an ion source is located inside the high-voltage terminal. Ions are accelerated from the source to the target by the electric voltage between the high-voltage supply and ground. Now, that sounds complicated, but it's essentially a Van de Graaff generator, and you've probably seen one of these. Maybe not in person, but probably at least in a picture or video. Uh, they typically look like silver orbs, that can give off a spectacular spark when they operate. There's typically a large silver orb on a pedestal, and then there's a smaller silver orb that's located a certain distance away from the large one. And when you turn it on, inside that pedestal, there is a belt that's running in a loop. And the belt is essentially building up a positive charge inside that large silver orb. And when the the voltage difference is enough between the large silver orb and the small silver orb, it will create a spark between the two. It can be really, really uh, spectacular. Now, I'll have to do a full episode on those in the future. Let's get back to touchscreens. So Hurst was working with others on his team to come up with what they called an electrically conductive paper in order to work with these Van de Graaff accelerators and to make their notes more um, efficient the paper would be able to pinpoint contact and when mapped to an XY coordinate system could be used to specify a particular location of contact. So Hearst thought, wait a minute, this could be used as an interface for computers, not just for registering a specific point in space for the purposes of research. So Hearst returned to work for the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in 1970, and he refined his idea. He worked with nine other eggheads to create the first resistive touch screen. Okay, so a resistive touch screen has a couple of layers, uh, one of which is conductive and the other of which is resistive, meaning it resists the flow of electrons through the material. And separating those two layers are small spacers, Spacers are essentially little blocks of non-conductive material. They act as a support structure. They keep the two layers from being in contact with one another. And there's also usually a scratch-resistant layer on top of the surface that faces the user because using a resistive screen, touchscreen, means that you're actually having to apply pressure on the touchscreen. You're not just touching it, you're actually pressing it. So when you press a resistive screen, you apply that little bit of pressure the conductive and resistive layers move closer together. They're flexible. And eventually they touch each other. Now, both layers have an electrical current running through them. And when they make contact, the electrical field changes. And sensors and a microprocessor detect and analyze that point of contact and register it so that the device does whatever it is you want it to do, from allowing you to make a digital signature to executing a command. Now, unlike a capacitive screen, resistive screens don't require the point of contact to come from an electrically conductive material. A resistive screen doesn't care if the thing touching the screen is your finger, or it's a hot dog wiener, or a plastic stylus, 
or a rock or whatever it is that's applying the pressure. All the electrical activity is contained within those layers that make up the out, outer part of the screen. So you can operate a device with a resistive touchscreen even if you're wearing non-conductive gloves. And if the screen were to get a little wet, you never want your electronics to really get wet, but let's say a little water gets on it, it wouldn't affect the performance. That's different from a capacitive screen. If you've ever had a smartphone get a little bit of water on it, let's say it's a very light rain and you're trying to use your smartphone, you might have encountered some problems with it. Well, capacitive touchscreens don't work so well when they get a little water on them. It messes with this ability to detect the actual point of, of contact with a, a conductive surface. Uh, so resistive screens don't have that issue, although you still shouldn't really operate them in the rain. Now, that being said, Resistive touchscreens tend to be harder to read and to see what's on the screen. They require more layers than a capacitive screen does, and uh, they tend to reflect a lot more ambient light than capacitive screens. Plus, while they are pretty hardy, they do rely on detecting pressure. And depending on how hard people are pushing while they're trying to use these things, it can cause some wear and tear on the device. If the spacers that separate those two screens get damaged, then the screen can end up having points of contact before you've even touched it, which sends erroneous signals to the microprocessor. It doesn't actually know where you're trying to touch it because it's getting conflicting information. Also, they were limited to detecting a single point of contact, which eliminated the possibility for a multi-touch. Still, because they could stand up to a lot of punishment and they could work in different environments, they found a lot of applications in different technologies, particularly in stuff like military tech. Now, just one year after Hearst's resistive touchscreen approach made the news, the University of Illinois introduced the PLATO 4 system. PLATO stands for Programmed Logic for Automatic Teaching Operations. One of the components of this system was an orange plasma display with touchscreen capability. But unlike the previous inventions, this approach relied upon an infrared touch panel. All right, well then, how does an infrared touch panel work? Well, imagine that you have an array of LEDs that emit light in the infrared spectrum. So they're like tiny little infrared flashlights. Infrared is outside the visible spectrum of light. So to us, it would seem as if an LED light was off because we can't see that light. But in fact, it would be beaming this infrared light across the surface of a screen. And on the other side of the beam would be a photocell. So in other words, a light sensor. And it's a sensor attuned specifically to detecting that frequency of infrared light that it was paired with. So if you could see these lights, it would look like a laser grid, kind of like uh, in Mission Impossible, where Tom Cruise is coming down from the ceiling. It's a pretty awesome scene. But that's what an infrared touchscreen would look like if you could see those infrared beams. Now, if the beam remains unbroken, then it's clear there's no contact with the screen. Now, if the sensors keep on picking up the light, they just say, all right, nothing's touching. But if something that blocks the light that's between the LED that's emitting the light and the photocell, that interruption would indicate that something has touched the screen. And by arranging the LEDs and the photocells, and having them paired up in columns and in rows as a grid system, then you have a whole net of those invisible beams. Touching a point on the screen would interrupt both horizontal and vertical beams along the surface. So 
a microprocessor could detect which photo cells had registered the interruption and then plot the point where that happened. So it's very similar to plotting a point on a grid in math class. Like the resistive screens, this approach had the benefit of working with any light-blocking material. It did not have to be electrically conductive. So a plastic stylus works just as well as a finger if the technology is implemented properly. Also, there's no need to work in thin metallic wires in the screen itself because the screen is not what's detecting the touch. It's this laser grid, essentially. Not really lasers, but this LED grid with the photocells. So the screen wouldn't have any wires in it. It would be brighter and provide more clarity than early capacitive and resistive versions could. That, that was a big advantage. The infrared approach would see use in the 1980s in the HP 150. That was a computer system from, well, then Hewlett Packard, before they became just HP. And it cost the princely sum of $2,795 in 1983. But if we adjust that for inflation, that means in today's money, it would cost about $7,200. Yikes. The HP 150 version reportedly had some issues that, that made it less practical. So I imagine that uh, the fact that it wasn't working perfectly and that the price tag was so high meant it didn't get a whole lot of traction in the market. Later on, devices like the Sony e-reader would actually adopt this technology. Now, around the same time that the infrared system debuted in the mid-1970s, Guy Weizapfel and Chris Herrot of the Architecture Machine Group at MIT, and I know I butchered their names, I apologize. Anyway, they created a touchscreen interface that could detect not just touch, but also pressure. I mean, it wasn't like a resistive screen in that sense. It could actually detect how much pressure you were applying to the screen. In fact, the system could detect up to eight different signals from a single touch point, including torque, which meant you could push your finger on the screen and you add some pressure to it and then twist your finger and the interface could detect that you were making this twisting motion. And you could have that uh, imagined as some sort of effect in a program, what kind of effect would depend entirely on the programming? So there's no specific application, but it could be used for all sorts of different stuff. So they published their work in 1978 with the title One Point Touch Input of Vector Information from Computer Displays, in, and it was uh, published in the Computer Graphics Periodical. So if you want to read up on that, you can. There's also uh, illustrations of how it worked. There's also a YouTube video of a demonstration as a very early demonstration of this 1970s era technology, but it's pretty fascinating to see it work. And we're not done with the different ways to achieve touchscreen functionality. There's still some more to chat about. Engineer Nimish Mehta developed a solution for the first multi-touch system in 1982 decades before the iPhone. Now, it's important to note that this was not so much a touchscreen as it was a control interface, like a, a touchpad, not a touchscreen. So think like a keyboard and mouse or something along those lines. And it consisted of a pane of glass with a translucent layer of plastic on that glass, giving it sort of a frosted appearance. There was a camera mounted below or behind the glass pane and that would detect points of contact. Essentially, it was looking for dark spots to appear on that surface that would indicate that uh, a finger was there blocking the light. 
This isn't that different from what Microsoft would use on the Surface tables a couple of decades later. I'll chat about that in a second. So in this case, the camera would detect these dark spots, and through software, the system would be able to interpret where those points of contact were in relation to what was being displayed on a screen. One benefit of this approach was that you weren't actually making contact with the same surface you were looking at. So you weren't smearing your grubby hands all over the same surface you were trying to read. But then again, you could argue the whole purpose of creating a touchscreen interface is to remove the barrier between humans and the machines they're working on and make the experience more intuitive. We have to learn how to use things like a computer mouse or a keyboard. It's not hard to learn, but it does mean manipulating something along one surface while looking at another. So for example, with a traditional computer, you would use a keyboard and a mouse on a plane that's at a 90 degree angle with the display you're looking at, right? So if you think of horizontal and vertical, your hands are manipulating objects on a horizontal plane while you're looking at the reactions on a vertical plane. So manipulating the mouse to move a cursor requires your brain to translate the motion along one axis of movement to a display that's on a different axis. Now, once we learn how to do this, and admittedly, it does not take very long, it becomes second nature. So it's not a big deal. But a touchscreen removes that necessity entirely because the thing you're looking at and the thing you're manipulating is the same surface. In 1983... Myron Kruger introduced another input method that wasn't strictly a touchscreen, but is similar enough to merit inclusion in this episode. Kruger's system could track a user's hands. It was a vision-based system, meaning it employed cameras to detect and track hand motion and poses. So it could detect multiple hands. So when paired with the proper software, it could translate the actions of those multiple hands into commands for a program. But in this case, the system would respond to what is called dwell time. Hand gestures or poses would correspond to specific commands, and a user would have to hold his or her hands within view of this system long enough for it to register that it was, in fact, a signal to do something. While this wasn't directly related to touchscreen technology, it is important in the history of gestural interaction, which does intertwine with touchscreen technology quite a bit. A lot of our interactions with touchscreens depend upon not just points of contact, but specific gestures, swiping, pinching, that kind of thing. And I figured I should at least touch on Kruger's work. Kruger wrote several books on technology that are pretty fascinating. I feel I should probably dedicate a full episode to him at some point. And we're not finished yet. So when we come back, I'll talk more about multi-touch systems that actually did rely on making contact with a screen. But first, let's take another quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle 
almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. L-A-S-I-K. LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K. LASIK.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the first screen to feature multi-touch isn't the Surface, it's not the iPhone, though you wouldn't necessarily know that based upon the marketing around those devices. A Bell Labs researcher named Bob Boy created the first multi-touch capacitive screen in 1984. Actually, to be fair, it really was an array of capacitive touch sensors that were mounted on a transparent film that could be added as an overlay on top of a CRT monitor. So the monitor itself wouldn't have the touchscreen built into it. It would actually be a peripheral you could add to the monitor. This prototype never emerged out of the lab for broader application, but it was able to register the touch of multiple points of contact, and thus you could create applications that would allow for that and to, you know, create new commands for how this could work. And there are a couple of other approaches to multi-touch. One, demonstrated by Jeff Hahn in 2006, used a rear projection system, a sheet of acrylic, and an LED that created Frustrated Total Internal Reflection, or FTIR, which sounds to me like meditating is self-discovery, only to find out you're actually a total jerk. But that's not what it actually means. So, to get into the nitty-gritty of the technology is more than a little bit complicated, but I'll, I'll give it a shot from a very high level. So, imagine you have a sheet of really clear material, like acrylic. Okay, so you've got a sheet of acrylic. Now imagine that we're looking at this sheet of acrylic from a side edge, right? So the top surface is, uh, is and the bottom surface are facing, you know, up and down from our perspective. We're just looking at it from the side. And you've got a bunch of infrared LEDs mounted on either end of this acrylic sheet. Below the acrylic sheet and facing upwards is an infrared camera. So uh, the control surface in this case would be above the sheet from your perspective. The camera is below the sheet from your perspective. So total internal reflection gives you a hint at what's actually at play here. Those LEDs are beaming light, infrared light, into the edge of the acrylic at a specific angle. It's called the critical angle, which results in the beam reflecting perfectly within the acrylic. So 
imagine that on one side you have the beam uh, positioned in such a way that it's angled downward from your perspective. The beam goes down, hits the inner bottom edge of the acrylic, bounces up with no refraction. It's, it's a perfect reflection. And then encounters the upper edge from your perspective, bounces off that, again, perfectly reflected, and does so all through the entire length of this acrylic sheet. Now, if you could see the beams of infrared light, you would see how they were crisscrossing around inside this acrylic, bouncing off those inner surfaces of either face of the sheet. And it happens because physics. I mean, it gets more complicated than that. But if I were to jump into it, I would have to talk about Snell's law and the refractive index. And honestly, it would get super complex and it would be hard to describe without the use of visual aids. So I'm just going to take a shortcut in this case and just say it works because of physics. Anyway, the result is you have these perfectly reflective beams of infrared light bouncing around inside this acrylic sheet. But if you were to touch the surface of the sheet on the active side, the top side, you frustrate this total internal reflection. Some of that light that was being reflected inside the acrylic sheet at the point of contact can pass from the surface to your finger. So reflection is no longer total. And the infrared uh, camera that's mounted beneath the sheet, it's pointed up at it, will detect that change in the reflectivity at the point of contact, registering it as a touch. And this system can detect multiple points of contact on the same surface, so it is a multi-touch approach. In 2007, Microsoft showed off a table-sized computer system that it called the Surface. Since then, Microsoft has used the name Surface for some of its other products, largely the tablet-style computers. But the early version of the Surface was much, much larger. And it was a collaborative workspace where multiple people could stand around this interactive table, the top of which was a computer display. And it could detect multiple points of contact on that computer display. You could manipulate virtual objects. You could play games. You could do a lot of different stuff. The Surface worked using some of the methods I've already mentioned in this episode. Inside the table was a projector, and the projector was projecting the images that you would see on the actual surface. So what you were looking at was really a projection being shot against the backside of the screen you were looking at. So in other words, the Surface's screen was what we would call a rear projection screen, very much like rear projection televisions. Also inside the surface were cameras that could detect the points of contact on the opposite side of the screen, on your side, in other words. Microsoft also designed a program that could recognize patterns that were printed on special stickers. Then they could put those stickers onto solid objects. So if you place one of those small objects on the surface, the camera underneath would be able to recognize the pattern on that sticker and then execute an associated command, which could be anything. But one version of this, one version I saw, was that you could have sort of a synthesizer application, one that could play pre-rendered styles of music. And each sticker would represent maybe a specific tone or a sound pattern or a sound effect. And by arranging a series of these objects on the surface, you could build a sound. So you could create a, a, a series 
of sounds, like in a particular rhythm by manipulating these objects. And changing the location on the surface might do things like change the pitch or the volume of each sound. So you would have this interactive kind of music surface to work with. And that's just one example of what you could do with this type of technology. There were lots of potential applications. Microsoft would actually bring that version of the Surface to CES 2008, but the company was also quick to say that the technology wasn't actually consumer tech. Rather, this was technology that businesses would be able to purchase for their own purposes. So you might have it in a retail establishment, you might have it in an entertainment establishment. Uh, One of the versions I heard about was being used in a Las Vegas bar where you could play games on the table or you could use your table to send messages to other people uh, around the bar on their tables, which kind of skeeves me out a little bit. But then again, I'm not a bar person, so maybe I'm just the wrong kind of guy to look into that sort of thing. But it just seems like another way to kind of harass people without them, you know, wanting it. Who am I to say? The same year that Microsoft first demonstrated the Surface, Apple introduced the iPhone. And again, while Apple didn't invent capacitive touch or even capacitive multi-touch, heck, even the gestures associated with gestural interaction on the iPhone were already described by other people in other systems. But the packaging of all of those features in a sleek smartphone form factor wowed the crowds. The iPhone brought touchscreen technology into the spotlight for lots of people, when earlier it had been a type of user interface that really only applied to electronics in niche applications and implementations. The iPhone was not the first consumer gadget to rely on touchscreen interactions, but I think it's safe to say that Apple got it so right that it changed the game for everyone, and it became the go-to interface for mobile handheld electronics. Other than the methods I've already covered, there are a couple of more rare forms of touchscreens out there. Uh, One is the Surface Acoustic Wave touchscreen. Now, as that name implies, this version of a touchscreen relies on sound, specifically sounds that are in the ultrasonic frequencies. Those are at such a high frequency range that they are imperceptible to us. We cannot hear them. Ultrasonic speakers would be along the edge of the screen that would emit these high-pitched sound waves. And those sound waves reflect back and forth across the surface, kind of like waves go across the water. And when something would come into contact with the screen, it would disrupt the path of those waves. And again, it would be a lot like if something large were to get into a, uh, a wavy pool of water. Now, with water... The waves are are really big, uh, particularly compared to ultrasonic frequencies. And that kind of makes it a little hard to see what the effects are uh, in this interrupted path system. But it's much easier to see the change with ultrasonic waves because they are so tiny. And sensors detect the point of interruption to determine where you touch the screen. So in other words, they detect where are the waves no longer able to travel unimpeded. And that is clearly the point of contact. There are also touchscreens called near-field imaging touchscreens. These screens have technology that monitors the electromagnetic field on the glass screen, and when something comes close to the screen's surface, it interferes with that electromagnetic field, and the system detects that and interprets it as a touch. These sorts of screens can also be pretty rugged, and so they are frequently used for stuff like industrial or military applications. 
And there we are. That's the history and operation of touchscreens. Uh, it's pretty complicated because like many other technologies, there were a lot of people taking many different approaches, all in an effort to achieve similar goals. And some of what I've described has also been used in other types of interfaces that don't involve a touchscreen at all, such as the gesture controls used in systems like the Microsoft Kinect peripheral for Xbox systems. Now, I think it's safe to say that the Kinect was largely a failed experiment, but it, I don't think it was because it didn't work. Because for the most part, it did work. Now, there were some rather egregious exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, it worked. Rather, I think it failed because the system never evolved beyond a gimmick or oddity in the eyes of most owners. Uh, you could argue a large reason for that was just a lack of very compelling content in the library of games and applications that supported Connect interactivity. Still, the Connect relied on a lot of work that was being done in the field of touchscreen user interfaces and gesture controls. So while it's not a direct application of the technology, it is definitely related to it. Uh, likewise, there have been several systems for everything from virtual environments to art installations that have used similar technologies to some touchscreen implementations. Uh, most of these have been visually or optically based. So in other words, they use cameras to track the gestures, motions, and poses of people within a physical space in order to create some sort of effect. You may have been at one of these installations or, or uh, applications where your movements through the space are reflected in some way. Maybe it's a video effect, maybe it's sound. But a lot of that also has related technologies to the ones that went into developing touchscreens. Now, considering the ubiquity of mobile devices, I expect we'll continue to see advancements in touchscreen technology over the years. It may involve new approaches to achieving the results, or it may involve refined implementations of existing approaches to improve the overall experience. And I'm not sure if it will translate to all our electronics. Uh, I think there are some implementations where touchscreens make a lot of sense, and in others, maybe not so much. Like, I'm still curious if people with desktop or laptop displays that include touch sensitivity really use that feature all that often. I mean, maybe they do. I'm only basing this off my own anecdotal evidence, which obviously is limited and therefore largely worthless. But it's hard for me to imagine using a touchscreen laptop or, or desktop display regularly. Uh, in fact, when I use my Microsoft Surface tablet as a laptop, because I've got a, the connected a keyboard I can use with it. When I'm using it like in that form factor, I totally forget that the screen actually has touch capability, that I could reach out and touch things on the screen instead of using the mouse pad. Uh, but also, I have to admit, as Tari will tell you without a moment's hesitation, I'm old. And so it's entirely possible that I'm the odd man out here. I do think it's true that even when an interface works and it works well, it's not necessarily the best interface for everything. So if I'm not the odd one out, and most people find touchscreens unnecessary for laptops or desktops, maybe we won't see as many of those types of devices with that feature included in the future. Kind of like how televisions for a while all had 3D capability, and then people said, I don't want 3D. I don't care for it. It's too irritating. And now, it if it is a feature, it's rarely one of the main ones 
mentioned on the box for those televisions. We might see the same thing with touchscreen techs for certain types of electronics. But for things like mobile devices, it totally makes sense. And I expect we will continue to see uh, it used there and improved in that implementation. And that wraps up this discussion about touchscreens. Obviously, I could have gone into a lot more detail about each of those, but that would have required a whole mini-series on it. And honestly, I'm not sure that uh, that I could do all of that without losing my mind. So we're going to wrap up this episode. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes, you can write me. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can drop by the website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. There you're going to find an archive of all of our shows, including the 2009 episode where I first talked about touchscreens with my co-host Chris Paulette as well as every other episode of Tech Stuff. You'll also find links to our social media presence and a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.